Authors Over 50, Writing in Life's Sweetest Third. Authors Over 50's weekly podcast celebrates writers and their journeys to publication. Writing after 50 is a whole story on its own, so let's skip to Life's Sweetest Third and talk with authors about their journey from pen to publish. Welcome, I'm Julia Daly, your host, and I invite you to listen to interviews with writers who've achieved their goal of publishing a book just later in life. We've seen award lists for under 30 or under 40, but I've yet to see lists for those who've achieved a significant milestone of their own, launching a new career and publishing their first book after the age of 50. We will hear about these authors' inspirations, struggles, strategies, and the smell of that first book. These writers' journeys inspire me because I'm one of them. My guest today earned an MFA in creative writing and writing for the performing arts from the University of California, Riverside at the age of 40. She went on to teach playwriting and theater courses at her alma mater for the next 17 years. Her fiction and nonfiction have appeared in journals such as Hip Mama, Fault Line, in Landia and Cherry Tree. She is also a playwright and has had over a dozen plays produced. Her debut novel, The Shinnery, is set in West Texas in the 1890s and is inspired by a family secret and her great-great-grandfather's trial for murder. She lives in her hometown of Riverside, California, residing in a 100-year-old bungalow with her husband and pets, a geriatric poodle, and a beloved tuxedo cat. Welcome to Authors Over 50, Kate Anger. Thank you, Julia. I'm so happy to be here. It's rather an out-of-body experience. So thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for being here, Kate. Our opening question on Authors Over 50 is always, what took you so long to write your first book? As a listener, I am ready for this one. And I am going to quote from the immortal words of the Grateful Dead. All good things in all good time. Amen, sister. (laughs) It took me till I was over 50 because that was the the time that became available for me. And also a little bit of the time that I I carved out as the as the clock is ticking for all of us. Um, I always loved to write. I always knew I wanted to write a book like so many of your guests. And I had this wonderful teacher. It was the 70s where you had the mixed classrooms with all the different grades. And he had written a novel and he shared it with the class. It was read aloud days and it was his family in Louisiana and they were lighthouse keepers. And like to see this man in my classroom who I respected so much that he could do it. He was a real person. You know, writers weren't these people in these castles that were so far away. And I, that really inspired me. And he was so smart. If you got done with all your work, you got a big reward. And that was what it was. You got to do more writing. So we had a cardboard box in the class with just random images. And you could go and pick an image and write stories about it. And I would zoom through my work so I could do more work. But it, I remember I had this picture and it was a grandma 
I thought she was a grandma. She probably turns out she was 47, but to me, she was very old and she was on a motorcycle. And I started writing this series of stories about grandma Gertrude, the motorcycle riding mama or something bizarre. And I, I just loved that creating a character and, and I kept doing more and more stories about her. And I thought they were excellent. And it was just, it was so fun. And I, I actually wish that writing was as fun for me today, because I can't say I still feel that way about it, although a lot of writers do, and I'm envious. But I am, um, so I always loved to write. And I was an undergraduate theater major in college. So I gravitated towards plays and I wrote a few plays. And then I made some life choices in about five years. I had three children and uh, they're all boys. So it was very busy household and a busy life. Um, but I would write little things here and there and like essays that were kind of prompted by what was happening and they would be published. I had a series of kind of gardening and life essays in our local newspaper. And then I was um, privileged enough to uh, meet a good friend who at the time was uh, not big time writer like she is now, but that was um, Gail Brandeis. And Gail, um, and actually I should plug her. So she just has this book called Drawing Breath and it's essays on writing the body and loss. And it just came out and it's so good for writers and I recommend it. But she was going to graduate school, a low residency MFA program. And for those of your listeners who might not know low residency, it's you go twice a year for one week. So it's a real concentrated time. And the rest of the time you're doing online exchanges. And she would share her reading list with me. And I remember like the first one I read as a, as a fake graduate student was Madame Bovary. And it was, I just paid attention to the work as a, as an instructor, like, how is this composed? How do they do it? And I, instead of reading for pleasure, which I had always done, I really started reading to understand how it was done. And um, then I thought, well, I'd like to go to get an MFA. And so I applied to a different low residency program all across the country, and I didn't get in. And of course, it was a blow to my ego. I was devastated. And it turns out, as things in life do, that it was probably a fantastic thing that I didn't get in because a couple years later, maybe even within a year, my alma mater, UC Riverside, announced they were starting an MFA program. And that was um, started by Susan Strait, the author Susan Strait, and Eric Barr, who had been my theater um, advisor. And I then I got in there. It was less than two miles from my house. I loved the institution and I had full fellowship. So no student loans. And I got teaching experience, which I wouldn't have had at low residency. So it just, you know, things work out. And it was a fantastic uh, opportunity. And it was just that time for writing. So I don't think everyone needs an MFA. I didn't get I <laughs> I didn't get a magic bullet, right? So if you're going to spend, you know, tens of thousands, it's not, it was just about the time that I carved out the time. And so our program was dual. And it, so I did theater, playwriting, and I did fiction, but then you can only do one thesis. And I went on the playwriting thing and I continued to do that. And I was hired and then I had commissions to write plays, which is that is the best way. If you can get a commission because it's a deadline, someone actually wants it and they're waiting for it. And if you're deadline driven, you get it done. But the fiction kind of languish, a few short stories, a few more essays, but I didn't 
I didn't focus on it. And part of it was life. Although I know writers with more kids than I had that seemed to get it done. But for me and my temperament and my responsibilities, it just didn't seem to happen. So I taught at the university. I worked as a writer and a research for commercial real estate and is a good life, but it didn't leave a lot of room. And then as I approached my 50th birthday, I had that what am I doing with with my wild and precious life, my one wild and precious life, as the poet Mary Oliver says. And I just thought, "I, I want to do this. This has been a lifelong dream. And I had an idea for a novel. And it's hard when you're committing to this process because I didn't know how long it would take, but I knew it would be a long time. And there was no roadmap. I don't, I didn't know how to write a novel per se. And so it's like, you're going to invest all this time and what will be the payoff? And I think there's some joy in process for me, but it's not like, oh, happy, I get to write. Oh, my, my special time. I can't wait. Um, so I quit my job. I quit not teaching at that point, but I quit my commercial real estate job, which I loved. I loved working with those people. And one of your questions that I hear you ask guests is, what was the best money you ever spent on writing? That was the best money I didn't earn. So we can say, in effect, that I spent that money, that I was willing to let that go, and that I I had support of my partner. But it was you know, it was a sacrifice, but then it opened that space. And it was the age of 50 that I was able to, something that I was dreading then became my superpower. So that's why it took so long because I needed to turn 50 apparently, and I needed to carve that space out. Well, it really all came together for you. That, that was great. And, and I think we, have to take time to learn this craft of writing fiction because it is so different than script writing. I took a script writing uh, course and I missed the interiority that you can do in fiction because it was more about directing the actors and dialogue. And I missed being able to tell the reader what I wanted them to know instead of depending on the actors to do so. So that that must have been a, a difficult transition for you. Yeah. And for me, I couldn't figure out what do you leave in and what do you leave out? It's like, OK, now because limitations are kind of freeing in a way because you know, through your dialogue, you have to create the scene, you have to, you know, a dialogue has to be very active. And I actually think that helps in my fiction writing. But all of a sudden, I'm like, the interiority wasn't that was a gift. I love interiority. Well, hard part for me was like, well, how much do I describe like, oh, do I have to say what they're wearing every time and what the place looks like and all like that felt like a burden. And the balance of that was tricky for me to understand. And it took a lot of editing and a lot of time to figure out this is not enhancing your story. (laughs) We all have uh, difficulty leaving out a lot of backstory. So that's always a problem, I think, for authors. Absolutely. Once you had written this book, how did you proceed? Did you search for an agent, decide to choose a hybrid, a small press, or did you self-publish? I did pursue an agent, and I pursued an agent for quite a long time. And I don't know that I have a lot of advice on this, because 
it's like kind of that shoot for the moon, right? You're going to, you're going to get a really good agent. You're going to, hello, New York, I'm here. And um, so I, I tried and it's, and I even targeted things like I didn't just randomly send out. I really studied agents. I read interviews with them and, and, you know, part of it is the vagaries of the market. Part of it is what I was writing. You know, I kept upping my query and, you know, figuring out how to do that better. I think my early queries were probably terrible, but it's hard. They're getting a gazillion people reaching out to them and, they're looking to sell a book that they can describe in two seconds and it's hot and it's hot. You know, a lot of things are high concept and it was like, how do you position your books? That's one thing they want to know. And I'm like, Oh, it's a women's story. It's historical fiction. It's Western, it's literary fiction, you know? So that was, it was tough. And I feel like in a way I wasted time on it, not to discourage anyone from doing it, but it, I think I, I, because they caution you, you know, please do not submit to a thousand people. You know, some people say they want exclusive. Well, that would be great if they got back to you in a timely manner. And again, I know they got, I'm not putting it on them. It's just how it works. Right. And so I feel like it kind of took too long. So I would have, if I were doing it over, I probably still would, would have tried to reach out to agents, but I would have done more at one time. And Along the way, though, I was lucky enough. Thank you, agents who give feedback, right? I, if, even if it's just a little, because some I just like literally just went in a bucket. I never heard a thing back. Um, but I did get some helpful feedback along the way. And from one agent in particular gave me notes. And that really helped me do a rewrite because that's the thing. It's like, oh, I'd love to improve this book. So you want to pick it up and, and run with it. But you know, you go as far as you can. And luckily I had a, a two women. That was another thing that helped me. I should have shout out to a meeting with other human beings and sharing writing. So a regular writing group is that accountability. It's that attaboy, keep going. Um, I guess that would be at a girl, but I thought that that was really an important component of it, but you know, you can only go so far. So feedback was great. And then I think I'd done that. I I had finished the book. I had finished the book a number of times and thought it was perfect. And um, I had been trying to get an agent. And then I just said in 2021, that's it. You, this is the year. So I was going to go to hybrid. I was going to self-publish. I didn't care at that point. I just wanted it to be in my hands. You know, you spend so much time and then it's like, okay, I can't go any farther. This is it. And I was just anxious to my for my family to read it. And I just wanted it done. Then I said, well, I'll try university presses. And I think actually Susan Strait was like, yeah, you should do that. And I found... Um, University of Nebraska Press, the Bison Books. Again, research who you're sending to. It was like, we want stories of the West, untold stories of women. We we published fiction. I'm like, oh, this is this sounds great. And it was the first university press I submitted to, and I think I had a yes within a week. Um, and it was like, it was, it, you know, it had to go through a process and then have more people at the press read it. But it was a dream come true at that point. And this is the thing, too, about being our age, at least for me, like 
I won't say I've never gone down the rabbit hole of like, I should have done this sooner. The career I could have had, you know, that's natural. That's human. But I've had a great life. And now it's just all uh, butter on the biscuit, as they say. It's just fabulous. So everything is I'm, I'm grateful and I'm I just in a place where I, I can savor the experience. So it was fantastic. It was all celebration. And the, the press has been wonderful. I didn't even know. I'd read a couple of things by them, things I didn't know. Then I started looking at my bookshelf. Oh, University of Nebraska Press. But um, great reputation. And I just feel really lucky to have, have connected with them. But I would have hybrid or self-publish. I, I, there are so many great opportunities of that. And in the Women Writing the West conference that I attended where I met you, there's so many uh, women doing that and and men as well. Um, this was focused on women and, you know, something like She Writes Press. I've met a number of authors from there. So I think that's also great. I think things are really changing. It's a strange time to be in publishing, but it's also pretty exciting. There really are so many options these days that Writers don't have an excuse not to publish. And I think it's very impressive that um, you were picked up by University Press. I think that's very impressive. Thank you. I, I didn't know to be impressed, and now I'm impressed. Yeah. You should be. <laughs> such a great, they have great books. And uh, one time, this is one of the perks of being a writer, they asked me to do a review of a manuscript. And I did. And they said, well, would you like this, you know, very small check or you could, I think it was double that amount in books and you can guess what I picked. (laughs) Very good. Well, it sounds like your inspiration was a great, great grandfather. How did you actually determine the plot of your book? So, you know, I heard this story from um, a distant cousin on a genealogy trip. And it was the story that was a secret in my family. My grandmother lived to be 93 and she never knew this happened in her in her own family. And she was born just a handful of years um, after events happened. Um, and the, the thing I learned is that my great great grandfather had been on trial for murder in 1895. And it was like shocking. I thought my family was just so boring, right? Just hardworking, hardworking ranchers and farmers. Um, And to have this in your family history, um, and this uh, cousin who was a genealogist showed us all these newspaper clippings. And we learned the story. And it was that his daughter, my great, great aunt, who I call Jessa in my novel, was seduced. Um, And she was a naive young woman. She was 17 years old. And she was, as the newspaper account said, she was made to love him. So this young man seduced her with the promise of marriage. And then not only did she get pregnant, but she was, sorry, these are spoilers, but you can still read the book. There's lots you don't know. Um, She was forced into prostitution, which is shocking even now. It's, you know, we talk about... um, uh, people being kidnapped now and 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 women you know forced into to sex work against their will trafficked sorry I can't think of the term um and here you know it was happening in 1895 and the 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 terror of her family being brought down by this you know she felt like she had had no choice so it is a book that involves um 
traumatic events, I think I've handled it in a way that um, readers are not overwhelmed by it. But it is a true story. But there's a lot I couldn't know. Uh, the trial transcripts are no longer in existence. There was a fire. And it happened in Stonewall County is where events happened. But we did have newspaper clippings. And I had one letter that was written by one of her sisters later on that briefly touched on things. But here it was 120 years later. And this cousin was very protective of the story. And what I read on it was this feeling of shame. It was shameful in the family. And my aunt was writing a genealogy book. And he said, well, you can write about the trial. You can mention the trial. But he didn't want her to mention about his daughter. And I just thought that that bothered me, you know, um, that she was forced to carry the shame. And I love the work of Brene Brown, who the shame researcher from Texas, and her thing about shame lives you know, in secret. And so it, I wanted to understand what happened. Like, how did she become an an easy pick for this person when she lived on this farm? And um, so that part I had to invent, but as we invent things along the way, it's amazing um, how you find little things. Oh, I made that up, but guess what? Here's precedent in the family for a daughter being sent away as a mother's helper which is what happens in the novel with Jessa. So I knew there was, um, I knew the broad story. I had dates and I knew I wanted to use actual newspaper excerpts. So that kind of afforded me a plot. I'm like, it's funny because I'm trying to write work on my second project. And I'm like, darn it. I need something to anchor me down. The other thing is there's a pregnancy in the book. And um, so I knew that that timeline would also be part of it. I also knew I wanted to keep it somewhat short timeline. Um, I love sweeping family sagas. I remember like reading the thorn birds as a kid and thinking this is so great. But for me personally, I wanted to keep it somewhat simple for my first novel. And even thinking about my second project and starting it, like I'm, I like short timelines. Um, I think that helps plot-wise, at least for me. Again, coming from theater limitations, I like those limitations. So um, that is how I kind of came up with my my plot is because it was a, a found story somewhat. Um, and then my ending is, I had some clues about how the family reacted at the end from photos and things, but um, the, the ending for Jessa is really my own invention. Um, and one, uh, someone on Goodreads, how did they describe it? I, I might've said it was a little corny, but they, but they loved it anyway. And I thought, you know, it, I, one ending I wrote was really like, I was just like tying it up in a bow and it's a happy ending. And I thought, well, that doesn't feel right. (laughs) But of course it is hard. I mean, my character suffered is hard to to have your character suffer. And at times writing scenes, you know, I was in tears along with her. So um, I do feel hopeful. And I think that is about my approach to life as well. So the ending is one of hope, but it is not tied up uh, in a bow any longer. Well, I think that's a good thing. And, and aren't they calling 
taking a historical true event and wrapping it in fiction, aren't they calling that creative nonfiction these days? I do write some creative nonfiction. I think I pushed it there's so much I don't know. And I don't use their names. And that was, again, that bizarre thing that hung over me, like, this is a secret. And this cousin, who was no longer alive, would somehow be upset. I was worried his kids might be upset. And my aunt was hovering over me like I was, you know, "What what are you writing? What are you doing? She was so protective of it. And then the funny thing is, I met my cousin's the this the genealogist's kids. I met them. Some came to a book signing. One I met uh, on on our road trip and uh, book tour in Oklahoma. They hadn't known about the story. Their dad didn't even tell them. So they had the the materials. But you know, sometimes when there's someone in your family that does family history, you're like, yeah, I don't need to do that. I'll just let it sit in a box. So they really hadn't looked through it all. So, um, and they were thrilled. They were thrilled that their dad's work had given rise to capturing some part of our history. And what was really important to me and we haven't talked about was, is place. So place is really important to me in capturing place. And I think it's because of my relationship, you know, where I live and Riverside, although it's, you know, become more of a We've, we've come up in the world, right? Um, but growing up here, it was always described as its its attributes were how close it was to everything else. We were 45 minutes from the beach, 45 minutes from the desert, 45 minutes from the mountains. It's like, but what are we to ourselves? And this place in West Texas, I mean, so many, I don't need to tell you, of the small towns are like ghost towns. Literally, where the novel takes place is a ghost town. And the other town, which was our, eventually our family's P.O. box, um, that's a, essentially a ghost town. And so I, I love that landscape because hardy people live and thrive there. And I find beauty in desert and dry and because it's the miracle of the rain and what grows. And I think the Brazos River and its deep reds and its sandstone cliffs I think it's beautiful. And so it's really important for me to capture that. And I feel like it's a little bit of a love letter to the area and to the people of the area. And I found that when I was doing book tour and doing events. Well, that leads us to what your title means. (laughs) So I actually that if I have a paragraph from my book that I found where Jessa um, reflects on what is the shinnery. So the title's the shinnery. And I got the name from a map that my genealogist cousin had made. It was this kind of hand-drawn map. And um, he was a map maker, so it was looking pretty good. And he had done these little triangles and he had written the shinnery. And it was right next to the family homestead. And it was a swath of land. And I learned, I was like, well, what is that? I don't even know if he told me at the time, but then I I researched it because I I don't know, I just like that word. And it was um, based on a French word and it referred to the shin oak that grew in the region. And the shin oak, actually at one time, it's it's native. It grew from um, all the way down, I 
think even to what we now call the Mexican border, uh, all the way up to North America, up to Canada. And it was one of those plant systems where it's the rhizome system and the roots speaks to each other like aspen trees. And they say it's like really it was one plant. And um, it, it's, I want to read, I want to read that little bit because I think I, she describes it better than I'm going to describe it right now. Okay. So um, this is about the shinnery. Um, she had to move the cows out of the pastures that bordered the shinnery to keep them from eating berries that were toxic to the cattle for a few weeks each year. A lot of ranchers destroyed their shinneries for this reason, but Papa had taught Jessa better. Without the expanse of the low-growing thicket of shin oak, the sandy plateau it occupied would eventually collapse and blow away. They'd lose all the tall grass that took root in the shinnery, big blue stems, switchgrass, and drop seed. Food for many creatures, from cattle to cottontails. The thicket's fall acorns fed the hogs and the deer and the pronghorn, and before they were driven out, the Comanches. It also provided shelter to prairie chickens, turkeys, bobwhites, and quail. All that Jessa loved about her home was held by the roots of the shinnery, roots said to go on for miles. Its budding was a danger, but only if you didn't take care. To eliminate the danger was to lose the vitality of the place. So I chose the title because I love the metaphor of the shinnery. It, it protected and it was something I found old advertisements in old newspapers and it would say, you know, come to Stonewall County, we have a shinnery belt. And um, I learned from a biologist that the shinnery belt besides all the reasons just mentioned about habitat and soil erosion, that it was something the cattle could, could come up against and it kept the cattle warm and protected them from those bitter, bitter winds. And um, I like this thing that cares for us and has these positive attributes also has this shadow side and what a great metaphor for life. So that's why the title. Well, you've described it beautifully, and you've described the place I live here in Texas. I could see that in my mind's eye as you as you read that passage. And it's so, you know, sad now because there is some shin oak there. You can find the shrub, but it's it's not like it was. It used to be like it was waist high and so many cattle ranchers and then the oil boom and it's it's just mostly gone and there are there are um, along the edges of roadway because of the water runoff um, you will find some they're much taller and they're they're different but they don't they don't do the job that they did anymore and that's I mean they used to do which is why the lesser prairie chicken for example is so endangered. Well, Kate, have you found any publicity that works or maybe that didn't work for this book? Oh, so that's in the same way as a first time writer, I was trying to figure out how to um, write a novel. I feel like as a first time author, I'm still trying to figure out how to publicize a novel, you know, how to how to get the book out there. And mostly what I've done, I, I'm not a huge social media person. I mean, I, before this came along, I hadn't been on Facebook in four years. 
<laughs> Hashtag politics. Um, and, and on Instagram, I was taking pictures of my cat. So um, I, I, of course, I'm engaging in that way. But I think it's just one-on-one. One of the things I'm really trying to do is like book groups. So anywhere, if you have a Zoom book group when you live in Wisconsin, I mean, I actually like to come to Wisconsin. I'd like to go anywhere because I, I love traveling the American uh, the American countryside. But um, I do Zoom books. And, and that's the idea of they tell two friends and they two, two, tell two friends and so on, right? So building an audience that way. I also, I just feel really comfortable. I love talking to readers as a person who's been in a you know, bunch of book clubs and loves reading. And it's so gratifying to hear people identify with the characters and arguing about the characters. And um, I, I, that's been really wonderful. I have um, a publicist with the press. And so they've done a really good job of um, getting it reviewed places. So I just found out Historical Novel Society, I just got noticed yesterday, got a review and it was a lovely review. Um, some of the Western writings. So that's been really nice. The publicist has done some of that. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to complain, but one thing I heard was really great is if you can write essays in support of your book. So things that are happening in current events and current topics. And I spent a lot of time writing like different essays and then it would be like, oh, we just published. Yeah, that's a current event, but we just published, you know, three on the Me Too or we did, you know, whatever it was. And um, because I think this book has a lot of relevancy as, you know, Me Too and the role of women and, and, you know, women not having agency over their own choices, especially as what's, you know, going on. But um, so I I don't, I have not found a magic key. I have not hired a publicist. Um, I can see the utility in that. Um, My book is actually selling quite well for it being quite well for a small press. Right. And, you know, because I asked that number early on, how many books until you're how many books will it take to where you're like, okay, this was worth it. And I didn't get an advance. So it's all gravy, you know, right. Um, So it's doing well. And I think it's mostly word of mouth. My community was really supportive. I had a ton of people at the launch. I did a book tour that I did myself. So I just the equivalent of cold calling. And I just I wanted to go with the place where the book was written and I'm so into history. I also was going, I wanted to see uh, Oklahoma where my uh, grandfather was born and they had a genealogy society. They had a, a, a library. So things that I think relate to the book, I've been reaching out and that's been my approach, but um, I'm always willing to, to learn more about that. Um, they talk about that first year being so important for a novel. And I, I do have a little bit of like, <laughs> apprehension that I'm not doing it right, whatever right looks like. So I'm sure you are doing it right. And, you know, we're told how important these first six months are and all of this, but, you know, I'm discovering books myself from years ago. So readers are going to still find our books long after that one year mark. (laughs) Thank you. That's good to hear. And yeah, I mean, I don't, I often wait for books. So um, yeah. Yeah. Do you have any other books in you? I thought it was going to hit the ground running. So here's another thing I did. I quit my other job. I have no doubt. My husband um, jokes that I'm a stay-at-home mom. And it's much better when you actually don't have children at home. 
<laughs> I recommend it. Um, but yeah, I wanted to be able to spend this year and travel and support the book that I had written and just, again, enjoy it. And then I wanted to have this space to write another book faster, right? Um, I'm finding a little, and it's just so weird. And oh, so comparison is the thief of joy. So really try not to compare, but it's hard when you meet a lot of great women, for example, through Women Writing the West, and they're like, this book, this book, I just had this book out. Now I have this other book out. And I'm just like, how do you, how do, you do that? It have, the mind space, when you're working on promoting one book to fully enter into another, I find that difficult. So maybe it's an excuse. I also have like, like I said, it's not that, oh, I get to write. It's like, oh, I get to write. And every book starts with a blank page. But I am doing research, um, historical fiction, uh, the summer of 1974. And uh, it involves um, Avon, the Avon lady's daughter is the working title. But um, yeah, just uh, exploring a woman's journey and uh, kind of a you know, feminist is such a loaded word, which is so strange to me, but uh, her journey towards finding herself through this prototypical uh, Avon thing, this idea of we think, you know, makeup and, and that kind of thing can get such a bad rap, right? We're hiding our authentic selves. We're a slave to that. But yet how this woman through selling it, wearing it, being involved in it and and going to all these different homes of all these different people, really opens her world. And it's also, of course, by August, it's the resignation of Richard Nixon, which um, I think is a port important time historically. We lost faith in so many institutions. And I think we still, the ramifications of that is still playing out. So um, that's the, the book that I have, you know, I've been working with. Really deciding on voice is, is tough, like our and like, or I should say, point of view. And I'm playing with voice, you know, first person. I love the immediacy of first person and the closeness, but then it's so limiting. And, and yeah, so I'm playing around. Well, it sounds like a fascinating topic. I can't wait to hear more about that one as well. And I, I think that you're in the perfect place in California to describe all of the the trends and what's happened with women's issues through the years. And it's so fun. I love research. And I think that's the part that I haven't given myself. I'm almost like cart before horses because I did a lot of research before I wrote my novel because it just puts you in the place and you learn these little stories and context of the place and the time. And then it just like, oh, oh, that could happen. That could happen. And I, I, I think I need to um, spend some more time on that. Although most of it is, it's a little, the reading's a little dry and it's almost like not long enough to have the perspective that you have when you're dealing with the 1890s. But um, I love, like I ordered, I was reading about, um, oh, well, just, just, just get Jen's book. Say that three times fast. I think it's Dear Mr. Nixon. It's a collection, her latest collection of short stories. And she was talking about when uh, Nixon went to China, Pat and Nixon went to China and the photos, these photos that were taken, these iconic places. And I was like, oh, can I go on eBay? Yes. And now I have that 
you know, that life magazine with these photos that I can look at and think about, you know, what that means for those people reading that life magazine and, and um, old Avon brochures. And it wouldn't surprise you to know that my mother was an Avon lady. And so this is, you know, tying into also, I mean, everything we write is a little bit about ourselves and our own experience. If we're not writing about our own experience emotionally, then I don't know that we're writing great book. I mean, you know, we've got to be in there. And, you know, that thing about we're all writing, we write one book and one story, and I can see the themes from my book um, come up again and again in all of my work and in my plays and stories. And it's really about, we have this construct of what we think our life is about, and it can change at any moment. And unless we learn to sail that boat and kind of go with it and be willing to begin again, you know, it's just going it, to, it leads to ruin and that there's just great beauty in destruction because something new can be born. So I write that over and over, over and over. Well, I think writing our books is some kind of therapy for us as well. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Well, as always, our last interview question is, our writers over 50 are unique. Do you have advice for writers 50 and above? So it's that idea. I mean, it's, it's, it's a cliche, but it's, it's never too late. And you will not regret the journey of doing it. And if you've, if you've written it and the only people that read it are your friends or your family, it, you've done the thing. If you have that in your heart to do, do it. And if you start and you really give yourself the time and space and then you go, oh, I don't want to do it. That's OK, too. It's as we get older, you know, I give myself permission. I stop reading books. If I don't like it, if it's not grabbing me, even though it could be fantastic and I can recognize that. But if it's not grabbing me at the time, I'm not going to finish it. I don't have to. I'm in my 50s. I'm 58, right? And so I, I'd say that about, about writing is just give yourself that space. And for me, that the hardest thing is the inner critic. And then that question of, well, where is this going? I'm spending all this time. Where is it going? It doesn't matter. Life is a journey. It really isn't a destination. I mean, we push through that because that's we'd all like to have our, our work published to share it. But just find people that support you in what you're doing and um, whether it's writing groups that you're finding online or in person and just make that space for yourself. It's a gift that you give yourself. So um, if you have it in your heart to do it, you can do it. And there's nothing that's, I think that's the thing. I mean, I'm proud of the book. I like the book. I stand by the book. The book's great by the book. But the fact that I stuck, I stuck it out because it's hard to finish things. It's not easy. And it just feels so great. You know, I don't climb mountaintops. I'm never going to Everest, but um, this feels like my Everest. And I, I feel some of the joy that people that climb mountains must feel. So go find your mountain. You can do it. Those are very wise words today, Kate. I think you really speak truth in everything that you say and you're a delightful author and you're willing to share and be so generous with the writing community. So we're excited to say that you're counted among our authors over 50. Woo! <laughs> and thank you. You are so generous to do this and to, to give writers over 50 a platform and um, 
Uh, I just find your interviews really interesting. And I, I pinching myself that I am now one of them. I don't know if I can listen to my own episode, but we'll see. Yes, you will. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for joining us today. Please look for Authors Over 50 every Thursday when we will have conversations with accomplished debut novelists over the age of 50. Please subscribe and share with a friend. And check out my own publication journey after 50 at www.juliadaily, that's D-A-I-L-Y, like dailynewspaper.com. Until next time, keep reading and writing. And remember, it's never too late to fulfill a dream in life's sweetest third.